You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We're looking at verses 21 through 27 as Luke continues his orderly account of the ministry of Jesus. He provides his readers with, with a certainty about the truths that the apostles had taught. And this, pers- this purpose of Luke, um, really it heightens the need to be very clear and honest about the challenges that his followers would face, uh, right? Uh, living in a culture that was oftentimes hostile toward Christianity, they needed to be emboldened by the example of Christ. And so throughout the gospel, we, we constantly see Jesus preparing them for this, right? Jesus never minimized the cost of discipleship uh, in order to win more followers, right? He could have just certainly done all the miracles he wanted, continue to do that and, and let people just have a superficial view of him as a, some miracle worker. That's what they wanted to see. He could have certainly appeased them in that way and, and continued to grow and have a great impact. But he was constantly calling them to something more, to follow him, right? He was calling them and challenging them and then warning them of persecution that would come. Um, he was honest with them. I think we need to, to, the church today needs to learn that lesson, right? Many of them, uh, in fact, would have faced a, a more difficult time because of their Christianity, right? It was because of their faith that they would be um, persecuted. So in this passage, Jesus warns and exhorts his disciples to prepare them for those trials that are ahead. Uh, but before he does that, he does inform them about his own death his own death and resurrection. He knows that if they are going to, uh, or he knows that they will need to see his own death and resurrection in order to grasp the true cost of discipleship for themselves. And in fact, even as he tells them about this, it seems that they still don't get it all the way through to the end. And we'll consider that later on. But uh, um, it's not until they actually witness Christ die and rise again do they, do they really begin to, to recognize what they've gotten themselves into? Um, but they understood who Jesus was. Right? They understood him to be the Messiah as Peter had just confessed, that he was the Christ of God, right? that he was the promised one. And so because of that, they were committed, even when they didn't quite understand everything. So because Jesus died for you, you ought to be willing to die to yourself and live for him. That's, I think, the message of this passage. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this gospel reminder to us of what Christ has done for us on the cross and what it calls us and compels us to do, what it, what it motivates in our own lives to live for him, to be willing to forsake all, to sell everything to gain that pearl of great price. Lord, may we treasure the gospel more so this afternoon as we study this passage together. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 27. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Remember, he had just, Peter had just confessed that you are the Christ of God. And he follows this up with strictly charging and commanding them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of, the, of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the, excuse me, and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, I want to just break it down in the same structure that our, uh, the ESV has broken it down in verses 21 and 22, looking at the, the death of Christ, and then looking at verses 23 through 27 as the death of self. So considering, first of all, the death of Christ, verses 21 through 22, Jesus is continuing his conversation with the disciples at Caesarea Philippi. Remember, this is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And Peter's uh, just given his spirit-empowered confession that, this, that Jesus is the Christ of God. They would have been acknowledging Jesus to be the promised Messiah. And the disciples were in full agreement with this. And so Jesus follows this up with a, with a strict warning. Not to, he commands them, he charges them not to tell this to anyone. Uh, were the disciples to begin sharing or declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, it's very likely that the Romans authorities would have been stirred up thinking this is another revolt or rebellion, and it would have just, um, it would have cut short the ministry of Christ, right? And so he is keeping this secret, or at least among the, the followers of Christ, and, and, it's, and it's continuing to spread, and obviously his popularity has grown to the point that Herod had heard of him, but, but he's continuing to, to, to want to, to keep as, you know, his identity um, less known um, until, until the Spirit reveals that to people. Um, Jesus informs his disciples here, following up with uh, basically preparing them for his own death. This is the first time we read in his ministry of him warning them or telling them. He'll tell them several more times later on in Luke. But this is the first time that he acknowledges he will die, but he also promises to rise again. And so let's look at this statement. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And as we talked about, the Son of Man was a phrase that Jesus used more than any other phrase to, to equate himself with the Messiah, with the Son of Man that's described in Daniel 7. As we're reading Revelation and talking about the Son of Man, we've, we've heard this a lot now. It, it was a, a common designation for the Messiah based upon the prophecies about the Son of Man. So he refers to himself as the Son of Man. They would not have thought he was talking about someone else <laughs> having to suffer and die. They would have definitely understood him to be speaking of himself. And he starts by saying that he must suffer many things. And think about this as, as the only sinless human being Jesus is the only one who could suffer on behalf of others. His suffering was not due to himself, right? Due to anything that he had done. His suffering was vicarious. As we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, it was for us, for his believers, for his followers. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. Now, when we think of the suffering, that vicarious suffering of Christ, we oftentimes just focus on the cross, and, and clearly he's, he's leading to that. But, but this is a more general suffering that really begins at his incarnation, begins at his birth in, um, you know, in humanity. That was the beginning of his humiliation as he, uh, you know, leaves heaven and, and dons the, the likeness of humanity, humbling himself in the form of an infant. Right? That's the beginning of his humiliation and suffering. And then he says that he would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. These are the three groups that made up the Sanhedrin, so the Jerusalem council, the Jerusalem court, um, that oversaw any crimes or any, any penalties within the Jewish nation, he's, he's re- reflecting upon them as rejecting him here. He knows that he'll stand before them in the future and that they will reject him. Uh, and this too is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 3. They will despise him, it says. So out of envy for the popularity and wisdom of Jesus, as Matthew tells us, in his gospel, the religious leaders will go to every length to put an end to his ministry, right? And even if it means bringing up mock witnesses who would lie about what Jesus did and said and, and make false accusations against him. So he's rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and then finally killed. This really would have been unthinkable. After just making a confession that this was the Messiah, they had no idea that in stating that, that, that the Messiah could die. Right? They expected him to ascend to the throne and to immediately take uh, over, overthrow Rome, right? They really did have an idea of a revolt um, possibly taking place under Christ. And so his acknowledgement here that he would be killed is, is a recognition of the, the climax of his physical suffering and humiliation, it would come at the hands of the Romans, and, and he does seem to understand that because in the very next passage, what is he, or in the very next section, verse 23, he's, he's telling them to take up their cross daily. He doesn't mention the cross in this, in this verse, but later on he's talking about take, them taking up their cross by example of what he will do, right? suffering upon his own cross. So he knew that he would be, uh, that he would die in that way. And again, this is, this is remarkable because um, crucifixion was, was unthinkable even among the Romans. Right? They, they didn't allow Romans to be crucified because of how, um, how gory it was, how painful the experience was. So, so they executed their own citizens in a more humane fashion. Um, and on top of that, the crucifixion was, or, or, or being hung upon a tree was seen as a curse by the Jews to be cursed by God. And so they just did not have these categories for the Messiah being killed in this way and being recognized as a curse. None of it would have registered to them. Uh, just thinking about the physical torment alone is, is hard to imagine. Right? People weren't meant to survive the crucifixion. It was meant to kill them quickly um, to allow for some excruciating suffering, but it was meant to kill them. And yet there's a, a man named Patrice Tomeo of Santo Domingo in Dominican Repub- Republic in 1973, January 30th, 1973, who decided that he would, as a, as a means of promoting world peace, 
allow himself to be crucified. And his intention was to hang on the cross for 48 hours. Now, of course, he, he avoided the scourging and the beating that, that preceded Christ's crucifixion. But he did allow himself to be nailed to a cross by six-inch stainless steel nails in his, his hands and, and his feet. And yet he didn't make it 48 hours because of an infection in his foot he asked to be removed. And so the newspaper headline said, Crucifixion for Peace Falls Short. Um, But thankfully, right, out of love for his bride, Christ endured the pain and the shame of the cross all the way to the point of death. And in in fact, it killed him swifter, quicker than than even the thieves that were on the side of him. Their legs had to be broken. Christ was already dead when they came to break his legs. But he also talks about his exaltation. So you have his humiliation there described very clearly, but he also does recognize that he'll be raised again on the third day. They should be filled with hope. Even though they're reeling from this recognition that he's announcing that he'll be be killed, they should also have an inkling of hope here. Jesus doesn't end with humiliation He talks about him being exalted in his resurrection. So Jesus expressed all this to the disciples by way of preparing them for their own persecution, as we'll see in the next section. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. They needed to know that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be killed, but that he would rise from the dead. So we know that they didn't really understand all of this, right? Because when he he is... um, arrested, they flee. They, they preserve their lives. They, they protect themselves. They run away. And then they're distraught and confused after his death. Although they do gather together, it's, it's sort of a mourning and a confusion. When Jesus meets um, the disciples on, on the road to Emmaus, they, they're confused. They don't, they don't recognize him. They don't understand what's taking place. And so he has to correct them. But after the resurrection, right after, the Pentecost, after Pentecost, when they're filled with the Spirit, these very same disciples, minus Judas, are emboldened and empowered to proclaim the truth in the, in the face of death, right? regardless of the consequences. They move forward in, in proclaiming the gospel been, they had been given. And so it's only because of the death of Christ that we are willing to die to ourselves, and so after pro- announcing his own forthcoming death, he, he then goes into this exhortation for them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So while they're still reeling from this shattering news that they've heard, Jesus tells them that part of their responsibilities as disciples is to take up their own cross daily. Following Christ will not be easy. And he gives them three aspects of discipleship here. He says that, deny, that they are to deny themselves, take up their cross, and then to follow. So just, again, thinking and breaking this down in, in terms of, of the phrases, to deny yourself. Christ, Christ followers are no longer to live for their own desires. And obedient followers of Jesus Christ understand the role of self-denial. We must forsake anything that might replace him at the center of our lives. Everything that a man used to live for is worthless in comparison to knowing Christ, as Paul will say in Philippians 3. 
and then to take up our cross daily. If, if they persecuted Jesus, now I know we can kind of minimize that statement, right? I've got a cross to bear. We kind of joke in some ways about that. Um, almost a, it's become almost a cliche, but, but he's just talked about his own real death. And uh, taking your cross daily is, is being willing to be persecuted, right? If they persecuted Jesus, they will also persecute his followers. And in fact, many will be martyred for their Christian faith. Many have been and many will be. So we ought to have the, the mind of Christ that's willing to, who, who was willing to empty himself of his heavenly privileges in order to come in the likeness of man and then to live in obedience to the point of death on a cross, Suffering of this kind is particularly Christian. Right? That is what Christian suffering is. It's to suffer for his sake, to suffer on account of him, and to follow him. So again, we're willing to follow Christ regardless of the suffering we might face because of his example. R.C. Sproul says, we, unless we are willing to participate in the humiliation of Christ, we cannot participate in his exaltation. And then he goes on to encourage them. He gives that statement in verse 23, and then verses 24 through the end are, are really his, uh, or 24 through 26, are sort of um, reasons to become a disciple. Right? The, obviously, he knows this is a challenge to hear, that you're to take up your cross daily, to deny yourself, to follow him, but why would anyone do that? Why would anyone want to do that? seems seems ridiculous. So he goes on to say, this will be how you will save your life. Right? Verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We should acknowledge that it's, it's certainly possible to deny yourself for all the wrong reasons. Right? To, uh, his command here could, could be interpreted by the Pharisees in a hypocritical manner. It is, yeah, see, we, we are to deny ourselves. They were the chief deniers of self. They were fasting twice a week. They were tithing to the nth degree, just like their fathers did in uh, you know, previous generations, doing it for all the wrong reasons. They were perfectly sufficient to save themselves by their good works. And that was what they were trying to do. They were just like Israel. And the prophets came to... to um, to call them out for their own hypocrisy as well. But, but all of their fasting, all of their tithing, all of their, their lofty prayers, right, that they prayed in public to show how righteous they were, it was all for nothing, right? They received their reward on this earth. What Jesus is calling true disciples to is much different. He's talking about true conversion and the kind of conversion that is always associated with a life that is transformed, that, that lets go of the things that we once were desiring, right? the things that, that, that we set as goals for ourselves to take up Christ's mission. Christ will not merely become an accessory on an otherwise self-serving life. Right? He takes the center and so whoever wants the most out of this life forfeits their interest in the life to come. And if, if we're living most for this life, then we forfeit our interest in the life to come. He gives another reason. He says there's, uh, there's no profit 
outside of salvation. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And eternity in hell is not worth obtaining everything this world has to offer. Right? We can count numerous examples of this uh, throughout history of those who have who have had everything they could ever want or imagine. No amount of money or fame ever brings peace uh, that the soul is longing for. Jesus was offered this very thing right, when Satan tempted him in the desert. But the cost of forsaking God was worshiping Satan and losing. And it, would have, it would have been a loss in the long run, right? an eternal loss. There's a, a certain tribe in Africa that elects a new king every seven years. But at the end of that seven years, they invariably kill the previous king before they bring in the next king. So for seven years, the member of the tribe enjoys this high honor, right? He's provided with every luxury known to savage life. And during these years, his authority is absolute, even to the power of life and death. For seven years, he rules is honored and worshiped even with possessions, but at the end he dies. And yet every member of this tribe is aware of what's going to happen. It's been accustomed for a long time. And there's never a lack of applicants to become the next king. They all want those seven years of glory, regardless of the cost. And so they live for that luxury and power. They're willing to sacrifice the remainder of life's expectation. Scores and hundreds and thousands are willing to be bankrupt for eternity uh, if they may only win their millions here. Right? We, we have our sights set on the wrong things. And so he says, none of that is worth anything if you lose your soul, if it costs you your soul to gain it. A third reason, the last reason he gives in verse 26 here is if we are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of us when he comes. And that shame might reveal itself in a number of ways, right? An unwillingness to tell others that we identify with Christ in his church. We might reveal our shame by keeping quiet when others promote sin and heresy. Uh, we might reveal our shame when we act one way when we're around church friends and then act in a contrary way when we're around others. Jesus warns us that if that is true, that if we are ashamed of him, if we are ashamed of, of his calling upon our lives, then he will be ashamed of us when he returns. So we ought to count the cost of following him. And he closes this out with this, another foretelling I tell you truly, there, can, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And this might be a bit confusing after, you know, he's talking about seeing the kingdom of God. The fact that Jesus has already talked about the kingdom of God on numerous occasions um, has having already been ushered in, right? That, that wherever people are submitting to him, they have entered into the kingdom of God. So what does it mean? Is, is, is this a foretelling, or is he just sort of describing what they're already enjoying? Well, clearly, verse 26, he's talked about his coming again, or his coming in glory. 
And so there's, as we talked about in Sunday school, and even I think a little bit in the sermon this morning, we talked about the, the kingdom of God having a present component, but also a future component, an already and a not yet aspect to it. That there is a future experience and a participation in that kingdom that awaits a future time. So it, it's speaking of that return of Christ where he ushers them into the kingdom. But it says his coming in glory. And so if it's talking about those who are here present that he's speaking to, these disciples he's surrounded with, as not tasting death until they see him coming in his glory, well, what is it referring to? Well, in the very next section, what we'll look at next week is the transfiguration. It says eight days later, Eight days later, this inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, will be witness to Christ in his glory at the transfiguration. That could be what he's pointing to. It's their witnessing him in his glory in the transfiguration. Uh, it could also be pointing forward to a prophecy about his, um, his, his own resurrection, Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, which most of these disciples will also witness. Uh, the angels, again, informed them that he would return in the same way that, that they just saw him ascend. So there's a, a parallel there to his, his ascension and his coming again. The Reformation Study Bible says this. I thought it was helpful. He said, since all will occur within the lifetime of many present, but seems to envision a period longer than the eight days leading to the transfiguration, the fulfillment of this prophecy is probably the whole complex of Jesus' resurrection ascension, and Pentecost, the bestowal of the Spirit on his church. So it's that whole stage or phase of redemptive history. And all of it was a foretaste of the second coming. Right, so in that sense, they would all behold the glory of Christ before their death. Again, let's conclude with this. Because Jesus died for you, you ought to be willing to die to yourself and to live for him. J.C. Ryle says his death was the result of the eternal counsels of the Blessed Trinity. He had undertaken to suffer for man's sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And then he had engaged to bear our sins as our substitute and surety, and he bore them willingly in his own person on the tree. And so because of that, because of the suffering of Jesus on our behalf, it motivates us to endure suffering for him. As Paul says in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Are we willing to know him in that way? Let's pray.